Welcome to The Table, a podcast put out by the good people of Pulpit Rock Church in Colorado Springs. My name is Thomas. I'm here with my friend J.M. Hey, Thomas. And we are diving into season one of our podcast as we talk about the Bible. So, J.M., where do we want to go with it? Well, I think we were going to talk about what is what is the Bible? What is it for Christians? What is it just in general? And kind of build a basis for people who may not have thought about this before. Right? Okay. We talked we've talked before about how it is very easy to transition from thinking of the Bible as timeless where where its words were written at a specific point in time and context, yet extend throughout time in, in, in who it speaks to and how it's applicable and tend to view it more kind of more ahistoric, like without a history, because, right, I can pull up my smartphone and download 30 different Bibles instantly. There's this gap between us and, and Scripture, and there's a context there that we sometimes forget to take into account of. And so I think starting with kind of what is the Bible is a good place to kind of build on for the rest of the season. So okay. yeah, I think it's a great question. You know, what is the Bible? Cause it seems like a simple question, but um, one of the things that's driving this uh, season is this thought that while the Bible is true, we can treat the Bible in less than true ways. Mm-hmm. And so uh, f- for example, like what, what are we supposed to do with the Bible? Um, I remember years ago teaching through the story of David, uh, the life of David. And you came, you come to this point with David and Goliath and you begin to wonder what's, what's the point of this story being in here. And you know, the story where David and the Lord's army are facing this giant Goliath and his army. And there's this kind of challenge of Goliath who will come out and fight. And David goes out and is kind of, none of the other soldiers will go and fight him. David says, I have faith. God's going to be with me. He goes out with his sling and slings the stone, kills Goliath. Spoiler alert. Come on, Thomas. Uh, And by the way, Bruce Willis was dead the whole time too. So another spoiler. Wait, but how 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 does the gospel story end? How does the passion of the Christ? No, no, no. I'm going to tell you that one. So anyways, um, so when you're teaching that, there's one way to look at that story. And one way to look at that story is as more of like a morality play or more of a uh, Aesop's fable kind of thing, mm-hmm. which I would say is how often sometimes we've taught it to our kids. So yeah. kind of the point of that story is if you have faith in God, you can overcome giants in your life. Man, I've heard, I've probably delivered many sermons with that kind of message to it, but is that the truest way to treat that? Mm-hmm. Or is this part of a larger story that God's trying to tell? And what he's demonstrating here is when you think that God's kingdom isn't going to go forward. He's going to raise up a champion. Yeah. And we see that with God is the one, God's the hero of this story, not David and his faith. God is the one who said, I know that this looks like an insurmountable thing and that the story that I'm writing is going to be ending here, but I'm going to go raise up the most unlikely hero, a teenage boy who's going to come and defeat the enemy because that's the kind of God I am. I get the story done. You, you have said before that the Bible is the story of God putting his family back together. Yeah, he's putting the band back together. Right, and I, <laughs> I love that because it starts with the family getting broken, and the arc of Scripture leads us to the city at the end of Revelation where the family's all put back and everything's put right. And mm-hmm. we're kind of now in this, we're in the last chapters. We're coming up to the climactic moment. But it's filled with these, I, I'm going to use a Tolkien word. He invented a word for it. It's called a eucatastrophe. 
Okay. So a catastrophe is an unlooked for, unexpected twist in a story that saves everything. And to him, the cross was the greatest catastrophe in human history. Mm. There was no way we were going to get out of the the hole we had dug ourselves into humanity was going one way and then bam, the cross happens. And now the world is going in a completely different direction. But I think it's the same kind of event that we see in David and Goliath. Like you just explained, it looks as though darkness is going to triumph over the kingdom of God. Yet unexpectedly, the shepherd boy is raised up by God and bam, the course of Israel is changed. There's all these points where God goes, you didn't know how I was going to do this. But here, let me show you that I'm a God who's constantly moving in new ways. And that's another theme of the Bible, I think. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to say to somebody who had never heard of the Bible, which I know in Western society is probably your chance of that is nil. But if you were going to say to somebody, this is what the Bible is, how how would you define that? I would say the Bible is one story of God putting his family back together. Yeah. And um, the, the reason I say it's one story, now that's that's actually a word that when we go back to the phrase, um, we can treat the Bible in less than true ways. When I say something is a story, that doesn't mean that it's imaginary or made up. It's a true story. Yeah. It's the true story of God putting his family back together. But um, a less than true way we can tra- kind of treat the Bible is to just come at it like, well, here's this one book or here's this one thing and not step back and realize that all of these books are put together in this volume to tell one story, the story of what was, what is, what is to come. This yeah. is the story of, of how we got uh, broken and why this world is the way that it is and what God is doing to fix that yeah. both right now and in the future. And so uh, one of the things that I think that's helpful is to, if you were to say, uh, you know, what is the Bible? And I say the Bible is one story of how God is putting his family back together it is to, to realize that we're a part of this story. Yeah. It's ongoing, even though this book was written and it's done, right? It's, we're not adding new books to it, but the story of what God is doing that was set in motion in the Bible, we're still a part of that. Yeah. And so I think it's helpful for us to remember this story is so much bigger than us. It's about God, but it's also about us. Yeah. And that's, I think, one of the beautiful things about Scripture is that it is this mosaic work of gospel stories and letters from people who loved churches so much they wanted to to guide and correct them and poetry and imagery and despair and stories from history and legend that happen and that tell us these truths about God that yet is consistent with each other and that we can continually go back to. One of the things you and I have talked a lot about is how it's not that the, the words on the page have changed. It's that we have changed. Every time we go back to scripture, we have changed a little bit more and God has opened our eyes and opened our hearts a little bit more. And that in our youth, we may identify with the younger brother in the prodigal son story. And then as we get older, we may identify with the older brother in the mm-hmm, prodigal mm-hmm. son story. And now as we're getting even older still, it's the father's heart that speaks to us. Yeah. There's a beauty there. There's no other work that was written over so many years by so many different people. And yet the internal thread of the story of God putting his family back together is consistent from start to finish. That yeah. arc is there. So uh, you bring up a great point when you talk about the, uh, 
like the prodigal son, that we you don't have to know the whole Bible. You don't have to understand the whole Bible to to get from the Bible. I mean, right. the, the Bible is powerful and true, and there, there are truths and principles and things we can practice, but it helps us to orient ourselves, I think, to the larger narrative of what the Bible is. Uh, it's kind of like if you watch um, Avengers Endgame and you get to a scene and you just watch one scene from it, you watch the scene where Tony Stark makes this incredible choice. Yeah. You know the one I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. That's a powerful scene. You know what really makes that scene powerful? When you understand the the 20, the 10 years, the 20 hours or so of, of movies before that that have led to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it becomes more powerful now that you see that it's part of this larger story. Right. And I think the same thing is true about the Bible is we, we, can, we can pull things out and they can be powerful and God can use them. But it really helps us to understand this is one story. It's the story of God putting his family back together. And it, this story is kind of broken into two parts. You have what we call the Old Testament, which is kind of the story of how, how things got broken. Mm-hmm. And and our attempts to try to fix things on ourselves and our attempts to to try to follow and grapple with understanding who God is and what he wants from us and what he wants to give us. And just a lot of wrestling of that. And then it kind of ends on this cliffhanger of, well, someday things will get better. Right. And then, bam, we have this New Testament where it's kind of this story of things are getting better. And the and the eucastrophe has happened this uh, this savior, this man, this God has arrived and died and risen from the dead. And now the process of repairing everything and putting everything back together has begun. And it's ongoing and we're a part of it now. And then there's some instructions, you know, in, yeah. in that New Testament of I hear some ways that you can help make that happen. And then there's kind of an ending of this is what it's going to look like one day. Yeah. But this is all one story. Yeah. Now, so you brought up an interesting point. So we as Christians hold that this story... This miraculous story, right? In some ways, the mystery of the Bible is the same mystery as the incarnation of Christ. Christ is fully God and fully man. Mm -hmm. And the Bible is inspired completely by God and yet written by human hands. We hold that it's authoritative. Mm -hmm. What do we mean when we say, hey, the Bible is authoritative or has authority in our lives? Like, how would you, how would you uh, explain that to somebody? That's a great question because I, I think that's a, a, an area where we sometimes get stuck because sometimes the mistake I have made, I know other people have made this mistake too, is, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. That sounds really powerful. That sounds like, okay, well, the Bible has authority. The problem is that sometimes I may come up with a, an understanding or an interpretation of what I think this you know, passage is saying that's different from yours. And so what I, when I say this is authoritative, sometimes what I'm really saying is my interpretation, my opinion on this is authoritative. And if I can't admit that, that I need to separate my interpretation from what the authority of what the Bible has, uh, that can lead us down some roads. Yeah. And I think kind of tied into that is we all bring the big theological term is, you know, hermeneutical lenses. But mm-hmm. really, I think we can simplify it and just say we all bring biases to the Bible, especially in sort of the broad evangelical tradition. We don't have like a tradition of interpretation that we rest on. We kind of have individual interpretation is that that's that's authoritative. Sure. And so if we don't recognize, hey, not only do we have personal biases that we bring, being, you know, just being Americans in the 21st century, we have a different outlook than, you know, people in Asia Minor in the first century. We can find hills to die on and to say, well, if you're not on my hill, 
then you've interpreted the Bible wrong mm-hmm. and you're not following it literally. Well, that's a really harsh thing to say to somebody when you actually get down to it, right? It, it, it creates more division and less unity. And so I think that's one of one of my hopes for this season is that we can say, hey, here are some here are some ways when we get to like how do we how do we use the Bible? Here are some ways to identify our own biases. Mm-hmm. Here are some ways to provide context. One of my professors loved saying that a text without context is a pretext for misinterpretation. Yeah, that's and good. We love throwing up you know, single verses at people, you know, what I, what I sometimes call Christian platitudes. Oh, well, we don't mourn like those who have no hopes. Yeah. Buck up. And you're like, one, it doesn't say we don't mourn like hardline. We do mourn. But two, that's at the end of an entire book that Paul has been setting up the church. So when he gets to that verse, it doesn't rest alone. The love chapter is another great one. And I love 1 Corinthians 13. I think it's beautiful. And I know we love to just kind of take that out and say, here is, we're going to read this at at marriages. It was read at my marriage. I have no problem with, let me just say for the record, I have no problem with reading 1 Corinthians 13. You (laughs) hate? I hate the love chapter. You hate the love chapter. Um, But when you look at it in the broader sense of the book, Paul isn't just making this grandiose statement of love. In fact, Love, as we understand it, didn't really emerge until like the 15 or 1600s. Like what Paul is saying is you have so much division in your church. Let me show you what you should be doing. And each one of those points in the love chapter ties back to one of the condemnations that he has at the first Corinthian church where he's like, you are divided. Love is kind. You are boasting in your things. Love doesn't boast. And each one ties back. And without that context, we sometimes will take specific verses and go, well, this is what the Bible says. Right. And so this is what we have to do. So I remember growing up watching um, Billy Graham preach these messages. You know, he would speak to thousands of people at a football stadium and they'd be on TV and we'd watch it as a family. And uh, he's a great guy. He'd always say, the Bible says, the Bible says. And I think it was a time in our country where people go, oh, the Bible says it. So, you know, that's true. And and now I think there's a challenge to that because we're like, well, what, so what? Who who cares that this is going to your point of the, of the authoritative. I think there are people in our culture who go, well, who, who cares what the Bible says? It's some outdated text. Why are you saying it's true? And I think we have to do a little bit better when we talk about the Bible, we have to ground the Bible historical events. So this is where I would answer the question. How is the Bible authoritative? Well, I I would say it this way. I, the Bible is not the center of our faith. The center of our faith is an event. Mm -hmm. That event is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said that if Christ had not risen from the dead, then our faith is in vain. It doesn't matter what anything else in the Bible said. It's all worthless and, and you've horrifyingly wasted your life if that event didn't happen. And so when I, when I start thinking about authority, I start with an actual event that happened. Mm -hmm. And so for example, when we're teaching through the book of Mark, I don't want to just say, well, Mark says, I want to explain to people, Hey, Mark, um, was an eyewitness to some events. And Mark also interviewed people who were eyewitnesses to events. And this is what they said happened. And I want to ground it in the historical yeah. you know, event that happened. So I think authority begins with understanding, uh, do we accept the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Yeah. I don't think this is a radical or new idea, right? When you look at the gospels, when you look at Acts, when you look at Paul, they are all viewing the Jewish scriptures through that lens. Mm -hmm. They're saying, well, hey, Psalms 2 said that 
God would adopt a son and make him make the nations his footstool. Well, that's who Jesus was. Yeah. Like they constantly, the cross became a lens for both like the very early church as they recorded the gospels and acts and Paul's letters. But then for the church at large, this event is the window into the way that the world should be. Mm -hmm. And that is the core of our faith, that event. And the Bible, we need to we need to keep going back and saying, when I read this, what truth is this telling me about Christ and about God? And there there is a way of interpreting scripture, and I understand it as a parent. There's a way of interpreting scripture as, hey, here's the list of do's and don'ts. Yeah. That'll put a smile on God's face, and that'll get you the points that you need to accrue. You know, you don't step out of line and you'll walk the tightrope and get in, get into uh, God's good graces. And I think uh, I'm stealing right from you, Thomas. If that's if that was the truth that the Gospels revealed and the truth that the Bible revealed, that's not good news. That's the same way we've always been doing things. The good news is that Christ died and Christ rose again. And now when when God looks at us, he sees Christ. He was he has been smiling at us since the day Christ died because that's all been taken care of. And that's really what the story is. The, 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 the family is now on its way to being put back mm. together. Yeah. I had a, a pastor who was giving me some preaching advice and he, his advice was, you know, wherever you are in the Bible, if you're in Genesis or if you're in, you know, numbers, or if you're in revelation, wherever you are in the Bible, wherever you start in the Bible, make a beeline for the cross. Yeah. And the, the older I've got, I thought, I thought that is, that is sound advice because that is the event that we are trying to ground things in. And uh, w- what's interesting about Christ as, as revealed is he's often referred to as um, he's the word of God. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, we kind of have this written word of God that we call the Bible. We have this living word of God, which is Jesus. Jesus would show up and he would do something that was astounding when it comes to the area of authority. He would say things like this. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Yeah. And this is an astounding act of authority because what he's saying is, yeah, that may have been true or that may have been something God said, but now I am overruling that or I am changing that or I'm clarifying that or I'm bringing this back. And you're like, well, good night. Who has the authority to talk like that about God's word? The living word. The living word. The living word. So so when you come back to authority, I think it starts with the event of the resurrection of Christ, but it also comes back to the authority of Jesus Christ. So the, the, the Bible is authoritative because as the written word, it is testifying to the living word yeah. of Jesus Christ. I think that, so, you know, Jesus is asked to summarize the entire Old Testament, right? And he says, love God and love others. That's making a beeline for the cross. You've got the fact that Augustine said, if you have the best translation and the best rhetoric and you don't produce love of God or love of others, then you have failed in explaining the Bible. Hmm. Yeah. So I wanted just, uh, to to throw out one thought. There's a, a scripture passage, 1 Peter 1, verses 23, 22 through 25. Um, it says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then he says, the reason that you're able to love one another is this, verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So he says, yeah. you have been born again, not through something that's going to decay and die, but in a sense, this it, you've been given the sense of immortality. You, you are going to live forever with God because 
of the word of God. So the question is, what does he mean when he says you were born again through the living word of God? Does he mean you were born again because you read the Bible and believed it? Mm. Is he saying, well, you're born again because of this message, this message of salvation through Christ? Or is he saying you're born again through Jesus Christ himself? Yeah. Or maybe a mixture of all three. I, I, I could go different ways with that. But what this does for me is it grounds again this thought that the authority of the Bible comes because Jesus is who he said he was, and he did what he said he was going to do, and he died and rose again. And so he is the living and abiding word of God. And that helps me understand the rest of Scripture is a testimony to who he is, getting us ready for him in the Old Testament, uh, declaring the truth about how he was there in the Gospels, and then beginning to, to take the rest of the Bible, uh, the New Testament, to say, so, so in light of that, how, how do we live this out? Hey, we're going to press pause on this conversation right now and pick it up again in the next episode. I hope that today's sitting at the table with us has sparked some different thinking for you and maybe some different things for you to explore or even generate conversations with others around you around another table. But we welcome you to come back with us next episode as we'll pick this up then. <laughs>